Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. So I have uh, Holly Kramer. She's a professor at Loyola University in Chicago. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, her research and her teaching. So Holly, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, if you would, so tell me about your, uh, your research. What does it focus on? Um, well, I've done a lot of research on obesity and its intersection with kidney disease because as we've had the obesity epidemic that started around um, in the late 1980s, around 1986 is when the body mass index really started to escalate and, and then continued pretty much linearly um, over the next 20 years. We've also had an escalation in, in chronic kidney disease. And then this has been compounded by um, an aging population. And so obesity has played a big role in the growth of end-stage renal disease, along with the aging of the population and increased number of patients with type 2 diabetes and increase in, in hypertension. And so my research is trying to just show that association and try to highlight this public health epidemic is, is really what um, my research has been trying to do. And then, and then it kind of came to an issue where what do I do next? I certainly wasn't at um, a place where I can do, you know, clinical trials on weight loss interventions because that's been done over and over again. And what you really need to have is sustained weight loss in order to treat chronic diseases. And most of my patients are morbidly obese and trying to do any kind of weight loss interventions with, you know, diet and exercise. It just doesn't lead to enough weight loss that you can really turn around kidney disease and its progression. So is I was it, thinking, um, go ahead. The question is, is it, is it obesity itself that appears to correlate with kidney disease, or is it the, meta, the uh, metabolic syndrome, the insulin resistance, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's really the comorbidities that occur because of obesity. But if you're morbidly obese, then I think there are some unique aspects of obesity that, that can um, accelerate kidney disease progression. Um, like from maybe some of the hormones and inflammatory mediators that can uh, be produced by the adipose tissue. And, but I think most of it, you're right, is, is from hypertension, insulin resistance um, that, that really uh, causes and accelerates kidney disease progression. So what does kidney disease look like? What, what happens in the kidney initially and then what happens as it progresses? Well, so let's break down what your kidneys are. So, each one of your kidneys has about 900,000 of these little nephrons. A nephron is just like a ball of capillaries that's suspended in urine and then is attached to a whole bunch of plumbing that basically those, that ball of capillaries filters the blood, takes out the waste products, and then all of that goes into the plumbing structure that's connected to that capillary ball. You have about 900,000 of these nephrons then in, in each one of your kid, kidneys. So you have about almost 2 million nephrons. So if you're born with a good set of nephrons, then you can really sustain a lot of injury without having any noticeable damage 
to your kidney function because you have more than what you need. But there are people who are more susceptible to kidney disease, maybe genetically for some reason, they have a reduced number of nephrons or the nephrons that they have make them more genetically susceptible to um, damage like from diabetes or hypertension. So then what happens is that over time and as you age, you know, you just have more and more of these nephrons that become damaged from high blood pressure and diabetes. And eventually it gets to be the point where the remaining nephrons, they just can't work any harder. And that's when you start seeing that your kidney function fails. And the nephrons, they're these capillary balls that are suspended in urine. They don't have a support structure. They don't have fat tissue or or muscle or connective tissue or bone that supports it. So this, this ball of capillary is kind of like a water balloon. If the pressure inside it gets too high, you know, it could burst. And so what happens is that as it becomes more and more exposed to factors that damage it, like hypertension or diabetes, it gets to be that it, it really can't sustain it itself anymore, and it, it bursts like a water balloon. It becomes fibrotic and scarred. And so that's what, what kidney disease basically is, is the loss of these, of these nephrons or damage to these, to these nephrons, these, these little tiny balls of capillaries that filter your blood and, and get rid of all of the waste products. What kind of damage occurs? Is it, is it just because there's higher pressure in these little capillaries that burst them successively more and more? Or is it that, I don't know, maybe the, um, the nature of the urine itself, does it eat away at the capillaries or do they, does the kidney itself deform, the nephron deform and cut off the capillaries? Like, what do you think is happening? Well, um, we really need more research to understand um, how kidney disease starts and then how it progresses. It's a huge area of research that is in dire need of funding. Um, so, you know, we really have a good understanding of how cardiovascular disease starts initially and then how it evolves. We don't have that with kidney disease, and, and we really lack really good animal models. Um, but basically, if you can think about it, that you can have these capillaries that are very small, and they're very delicate, and they lack anything that supports it. So ongoing damage could damage the walls of the capillary. That could be from like barrel trauma because the blood pressure is too high, or it can be because you have very high um, levels of glucose that damage that wall and alter the wall. The, the sugar molecules actually will attach to proteins that are part of that cell wall and then lead to damage to that wall. And there's also theories that then when you damage that capillary wall, protein will leak out into the urinary space where it normally shouldn't. And then that gets into your plumbing, into your tubules, and then can get reabsorbed by the kidney. And then that causes inflammation. Um, that's, a, that's another theory. Um, there's also issues of, of low oxygen content um, in the kidney because actually the lowest oxygen level in your body um, is in the medulla, in the kidney, the inner part of the kidney. So things that um, take away oxygen from your body like carbon monoxide from air pollution or from cigarette smoking can cause damage to the kidney. Um, or if you have exposure to heavy metals, cadmium or lead, those things can also damage the plumbing in the kidney. And then if the plumbing is damaged, then the urine can't get into the plumbing and it backs up into the glomerulus, into the little nephron unit and causes scarring. 
So there's all sorts of different things that can cause kidney damage. In most cases, it's a multitude of factors that lead to kidney disease, not just one. Um, do any like atherosclerotic plaques build up in the capillaries in the kidney, or is that like a not preferred site? Has that been no. Observed? Yeah, you don't usually have that, but you can have um, like a thickening of the of the arterioles in there where it gets it gets really thick, so the blood has a hard time moving through the arteriole, but not atherosclerosis, not like lipid plaques. You don't get that. And because there's two kidneys, um, has it been observed that preferentially one gets affected more than the other? No, it's a systemic disease, so it's going to affect both. Oh, I just wondered. It'd be interesting if it did, but I guess not. Um, any factors among, uh, you know, men or women or, uh, you know, is there a certain age range where things accelerate and deteriorate faster? Well, certainly, um, aging is a big risk factor for kidney disease because as you age, you lose those nephrons, those little balls of capillaries. They, they get old and die off. So as you age, you lose some kidney function on its own, even in a healthy state. So aging, if it's compounded by morbid obesity, uncontrolled hypertension, poorly controlled diabetes, um, then, you know, you're really high risk for developing kidney disease and kidney disease progression. And what, um, you know, have you looked at like the histology of, of kidney tissue? Or I guess, you know, you read about it in papers, like, are there any interesting things that have been observed when kidneys have been dissected and looked at? Um. I don't know what you mean. I know it's a, it's a broad question, but, you know, can you see the the progression of disease when you look at the tissue, you know, under a microscope, for instance? Is, it, is there anything um, structural that's observed that's interesting about, you know, when people are in these diseased states, what their kidneys look like? Well, I think what's interesting is that when we get a kidney biopsy, maybe we'll get 25, 30 nephrons in that are in our little tiny piece of tissue that is basically the size of like a millipede. That's kind of like usually our core kidney biopsy would be the size of a millipede. And and maybe we would get 10, 15 nephrons. Maybe some of the other nephrologists who are better than me at doing biopsies would get more. But when you look at that, you have to kind of guess that what you're seeing in that tissue represents, remember I said 900,000 nephrons in one kidney alone. So when you get a biopsy, you know, it's a, it's a really small fraction of, of the total number of nephrons. And so you have to say, okay, the scarring that I see in here or the infiltrate of white blood cells or anything like that is representative of, of everything in the kidney. And sometimes that's, that, that's not a correct assumption. So it, the biopsy findings really differ by um, what type of kidney disease they have. Like diabetes is usually associated with these like nodules that are on on a pathology specimen. They'll look like round, rosy nodules, and it's just basically scar tissue, and they'll be kind of scattered throughout the that capillary ball. Um, and that's what we uh, normally look for. But it's, it's not specific for diabetes. You can see it in other types of diseases. But you can think of that. You know, it's really a disease of scarring in, in most cases. Um, you might have inflammation in some types of diseases, but then eventually that's going to lead to scarring and loss of a nephron. What happens in people that are on uh, dialysis? Do they, I mean, I don't know, do they ever need to pee? And like, what happens to their kidneys? Well, um, when people start dialysis, usually they only have, you know, 6% or less of their kidney function. 
Most people will have some urine output when they first start dialysis, but then usually after about the first two years of being on dialysis, though, that urine output will go way down, if not go away altogether. And there's a lot of research right now of trying to figure out how to get people to keep that residual kidney function that they have left, um, because we know that patients who have some residual kidney function left do better on dialysis than people who have none. Oh, why do you think that is? Because the kidneys do so much more than what a dialysis machine can do. You know, kidneys make hormones. They convert vitamin D into active vitamin D. They also um, secrete toxins. It, it's more than just filtering the blood and getting rid of urea. You know, it, it does so much more. And we just really underappreciate all of the roles that the kidneys do. And what are the biomarkers that someone can look at to tell that they have the beginning stages or, you know, medium or late stages of kidney disease? So there's two um, major markers that you look at. The first one would be creatinine. Creatinine is measured anytime you have uh, a basic metabolic profile or a complete metabolic profile. And then creatinine um, can be used to estimate your filtration rate, which is your kidney function. So creatinine is actually just a waste product. You have creatine in your muscle that is used to recycle ATP to um, from ADP so that you can continue to have muscle movement. And then when the creatine gets old, it loses a water group and it becomes creatinine, which is just a garbage product. And it leaks out of your muscle and gets into your bloodstream and then it gets filtered by the kidney. And its main mechanism of elimination is through glomerular filtration rate. So we can look at the levels of creatinine in the blood to tell us how good the kidney is functioning. I always tell my patients it's like a golf score. The lower your creatinine is, the better your kidney function is. But it's also a marker of your muscle because, remember, it's a byproduct of creatine, which is in your muscle. So it's not completely dependent on glomerular filtration rate because it also is dependent upon how much muscle mass you have as well. The second biomarker is in your urine, and that's the urine albumin, because normally your kidneys should not allow proteins to leak into your urine. It should want to keep all of your proteins um, in your blood. So if you see a lot of albumin, uh, which is a protein, is in someone's urine, then that tells you that there's damage to those little capillary balls, the nephrons, there's damage to it. Um, so those are the two main markers that we look for for kidney disease. For um, creatinine, could that be an indicator of you know sudden muscle loss in someone? Well, so like if you're really malnourished and have really low muscle mass, your serum creatinine level should be low. It should be like 0.4. If you have really good muscle uh, function and you're very muscular, like maybe someone in the NBA, then your serum creatinine might be like 1.4. And those, and those, both of those people with serum creatinines of 0.4 or serum creatinine of 1.4 could have the same kidney function. But they, you have those differences in the values just because of their muscle mass. Hmm, okay. So um, what's the progression of the biomarkers over time as people go through the stages of disease? Do, do, does the creatinine just simply go up? Um, does the albumin just simply simply start appearing and then go up? What's observed? Yeah, so um, it has a really unique relationship to the kidney function because 
when your creatinine goes from one to two, then you've actually lost 50% of your kidney function. So um, if you start off, if a normal creatinine for you is 0.5, then as it goes from 0.5 to one, that's a 50% decline in your glomerular filtration rate. Um, then as the, as the creatinine uh, gets higher and higher, it actually indicates smaller and smaller changes in the glomerular filtration rate. So the biggest changes are when you go from a normal creatinine to like an abnormal creatinine in the, in the early stages um, of kidney disease is when you'll see um, the biggest changes in glomerular filtration rate with even small changes in serum creatinine. So we do see that the creatinine, you know, gets higher and higher. We use a formula to estimate glomerular filtration rate based on creatinine and then also based on the patient's age, their sex, and their race because of that muscle issue that I talked to you about. And then the second thing is we look at the kidney damage, which is by looking at the urine albumin levels. So we do that by measuring um, the amount of albumin that's in the urine and how much creatinine is in the urine. Because remember how the kidney filters the creatinine? So it's going to dump it into the urine, obviously. So you always have creatinine in your urine, but you shouldn't have much albumin in the urine. So what we do is we look at that ratio of albumin in the urine to creatinine in the urine. And if that ratio is, is higher than normal, then we know that the person has got kidney damage and they're spilling albumin in the urine and they shouldn't be. Can kidneys heal, you know, with proper diets over time or are they never observed to heal? Well, you can never regain your nephrons. Once you lose nephrons, you're done. I mean, you're born with a set number of nephrons. So, you know, once you lose those, you're done. It's not like skin. You can't regrow them. Now, if you have... Um, changes to your kidney function because of reversible causes, like maybe you didn't have enough blood flow going to your kidney, or maybe you had like an allergic reaction, your kidneys just has a lot of inflammation in your kidney that's causing not enough blood to get into the kidneys, then that can be reversible. But, you know, diseases that are from, you know, diabetes or hypertension, and you're losing nephrons because of the damage from those diseases, you not going to get your kidney function back. And um, for albumin, is there a sudden breakthrough that happens? Like it suddenly spikes in people that have disease or is it just a slow you know, increase in it over time? It's usually a slow increase over time. Unfortunately, the early stages are usually never caught. Um, you know, despite the fact that the American Diabetes Association and the National Kidney Foundation have been asking people to screen persons with diabetes, um, you know, for over a decade, only 30% of people with diabetes have their urine tested for albumin. I understand. Um, so is there any symptoms when you're in the early stages of kidney disease? And, you know, later on, what are the symptoms if you have them? So kidney disease in the early stages is asymptomatic. So I know we say hypertension is the silent killer, but I would say now kidney disease is really the silent killer because we have 37 million people with kidney disease, and the overwhelming majority of people don't know they have it. And the reason is because it doesn't have symptoms until it's really late stage. So people go to their primary care doctor, and they're not complaining about their kidneys, right? They're complaining about their headache or their stomach pain or their arthritis, and those things get diagnosed and treated, whereas the kidney disease, you know, remains ignored for a long time, largely because it doesn't have symptoms. So 
in late stages, when your kidney functions like less than 10% is when you'll really start to have symptoms. And those symptoms can be um, nausea, metal taste in your mouth, severe fatigue, feel like you have to take a nap all the time, um, restless legs at night. Um, those would be sort of the main symptoms. Also, you might have increased swelling in your face and your legs, difficulty breathing because you're you're volume overloaded because your kidneys aren't excreting all the excess salt and water that you take in. Yeah, what what builds up first? Is it so you take on what excess water and you get bloated and you take on excess salt or you you have much higher salt levels? Like what's experienced? Well, it's gonna the excess uh, salt and water is going to be in their extracellular volume. So people will get edematous. They'll have swelling in the legs. In late stages, they might have swelling in the face even, swelling around the eyes. Um, so that would probably be the first thing. You're not going to see an increase in the serum sodium because that would have to do with um, sodium. That's uh, that, that would have to do with your water, um, amount of water that you have on board. So it's really more salt and water in your extracellular space is, is what you see. So what studies or trials are being done that you're looking forward to the results of? What's being tried? What's, what's being figured out right now that's important? I think um, what I'm most interested in is this trial called EMPA Kidney. So EMPA Kidney is looking at empagliflozin, which is an SGLT2 inhibitor. And it's looking at it in people who have kidney disease regardless of diabetes. So it's going to be looking at people who might have metabolic syndrome and they have kidney disease, but they don't have established um, diabetes. And so I'm really interested to see if that drug is beneficial in people. There's a lot of people who don't have overt type 2 diabetes, but they have metabolic syndrome and they have chronic kidney disease. And I think that this drug, um, you know, might have benefits. I'm really eager to see what that uh, trial is going to show. So these SGLT2 inhibitors, what they do is they block um, glucose transporter in the proximal tubule in the early part of the plumbing of the tubules um, that connect with that ball of capillaries. And normally, the glucose that you filter from your blood gets reabsorbed. If you block that transporter, one of those transporters, then you actually excrete a lot of glucose into the urine and sodium follows with it. So you have a little bit of a diuresis, but you also are telling your body that you have less sugar in it, and it lowers the insulin levels, and it sort of mimics um, a caloric-restricted state, which then can um, help with uh, kidney perfusion and um, can help uh, reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease or heart failure and kidney disease progression. So that's been shown in patients with type 2 diabetes, the, the canagliflozin and the empagliflozin. Both of those drugs have been shown to um, prevent cardiovascular disease in people who have type 2 diabetes and slow kidney disease progression. But would those people have a higher serum um, blood sugar level? Or is it, um, just, is it dumping so fast that not only will insulin be lower, but you know, will blood sugar be lower too? Uh, so actually, you 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 have to um, actually reduce some of their glucose lowering medications, but their insulin levels go down. So you you know you can't take them off of the insulin. And one of the black box warnings, or not black box warning, but one of the warnings with the medication is that it can cause um, ketosis, 
because if you don't have enough insulin, then you're going to create ketones. Um, so you don't want to take them off of their insulin because the glucose levels go down. The, the insulin levels that are produced by the body will actually go down as well. Um, but, but yeah, the sugar levels go down. It has, it does lower the hemoglobin A1C in people who have, have good kidney function. It's not all that great in lowering glucose levels in people who have advanced kidney disease. Hmm, okay. That sounds very promising. What's, are the uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, are they through clinical trials or what stage are they at? Uh, well, there's been um, a couple clinical trials. The EMPA-REG trial and the Credence trial um, were published in, in the New England Journal. And so those studies are out. The um, empaglifosin is approved by the FDA for cardiovascular disease risk reduction in people who have type 2 diabetes. And um, it's one of the few drugs we have that's been shown to really reduce um, kidney disease progression in people with type 2 diabetes. Well, it's great. What, I mean, at what point will it be, uh, you know, when you go to your doctor and they prescribe it to you? Is that far off or is that here or coming soon? Well, that's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. You know, whenever something new is introduced, it takes about eight years before it is really fully implemented into clinical medicine. You know, people are really busy. They need to feel comfortable with a new drug. And the SGLT2 inhibitors are a little complicated. What I have to do is I have to make sure that I communicate with primary care providers, with the cardiologist, with the endocrinologist, that everybody knows that this drug is being started because there's always a risk of acute kidney injury because maybe it has diuretic effects. You have to be worried about the insulin levels and the glucose control, making sure they have enough insulin, but yet they don't have too much of the glucose-lowering medications on board. Um, and and then you also have to reduce the amount of diuretics that you're giving the patient. So a lot of these patients who have, you know, bad diabetic kidney disease, you know, they have heart disease, they're on diuretics, you know, they're on more than one diabetes-lowering medications, and they have multiple people who take care of them. So it really requires good communication and oversight of the patient. So it's not all that simple. But I'd say, it's, it, to me, it looks really worth it when you look at the results of the clinical trials and the fact that you could maybe give some of these patients with advanced kidney disease another six, seven, eight years off of dialysis. To me, it's worth it. Yeah, because I've heard once people are on dialysis, they don't tend to last too long, I guess. But, you know, what's the average lifetime expectancy once you're on dialysis? It's pretty low, right? Well, it does have a really high mortality rate <clears throat> for all comers. Um, that's true. But that being said, I mean, I've had patients who've been on dialysis for 20, 30 years. Um, that's not all that uncommon. People who have diabetes and are, and are on dialysis um, tend to have more comorbidities than people who don't have diabetes that are on dialysis. So the... Um, so overall survival for people with diabetes or on dialysis is lower than people who don't have diabetes. Um, so it, it really depends on, you know, like the age and, and the associated comorbidities. And that's why, you know, anytime we get someone started on dialysis, we're always trying to figure out how can we get this patient transplanted. Well, how could someone be on dialysis but not have diabetes? What would be the cause then that necessitates oh, it? It could be uh, glomerular diseases cause uh, kidney disease, like IgA nephropathy or membranous glomerulonephritis or focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Those are primary what we call glomerular diseases, diseases that originate within that nephron. Um, 
You can also have genetic diseases like polycystic kidney disease where you develop all these cysts in the kidneys. That is, accounts for about 5 to 7% of all patients on dialysis have, have polycystic kidney disease. Um, and there's other genetic diseases as well. Um, and we continue to learn more and more about how our genetic background can influence kidney disease risk. Well, and then your particular research, um, I feel like I've, you know, I learned a lot by speaking to you and I have like a better feel for what's going on. So if you don't mind, can we revisit your research a little bit? What's, what are you looking for specifically to figure out? Well, what I was saying before was that, you know, I was doing all this obesity research and I just kind of came to a point of like, where do I go next with this? I didn't feel like I had the skill set to solve the problem of obesity and figure out an intervention that's going to magically make people who are morbidly obese, you know, have an ideal BMI and swim five, you know, miles a week. That just wasn't happening. Like, so I I just kind of thought, what is it that I can do with the resources that I have to influence the obesity epidemic, especially in the field of kidney disease where, you know, where my interest lies? And um, so I realized that medical nutrition therapy was being really poorly utilized within my own center um, in my own health system. So I started then looking at other health systems and found out, yeah, they're utilizing it really poorly too. We looked at it in the VA health system and they were doing a little bit better than other health systems. But overall, most people with kidney disease were only getting medical nutrition therapy like 10% of the time, 12% of the time. Now, if you think about it, most patients with kidney disease are not even getting diagnosed. Then among the ones who are getting diagnosed, only about 10% were seeing a dietitian. And we know that the overwhelming majority of kidney disease is nutritionally mediated, right? It has to do with, you know, bad diets that lead to hypertension and diabetes and obesity. It's, that's the core of the majority of our of our kidney disease, and even among the people who have genetic reasons to have kidney disease, it's probably exacerbated by nutritional factors. So then um, I reached out to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and met um, this woman named Elizabeth Jimenez Yates, who's a registered dietitian and a researcher. And so we started trying to figure out, you know, research to increase uptake of medical nutrition therapy. So here's the story in medical nutrition therapy. Um, in 2011, uh, the Affordable Care Act had an amendment to it that made preventable services available to patients without a copay. So if you're in a Medicare, you can get, you know, like mammograms and, and you know, health checkups for free without like a $20 copay or whatever. And medical nutrition therapy was part of that. So you can get free, no copay, medical nutrition therapy at least three times um, with a registered dietitian if you have chronic kidney disease, meaning glomerular filtration rate between 50 to 15, or if you have type 2 diabetes, or if you've had a kidney transplant within the past three years. So despite the fact that it's completely covered by Medicare with no copay, since 2012, only 10% of people are are seeing a dietitian if they have kidney disease. And it's actually pretty similar for diabetes. Most of the diabetes education comes from like diabetes educators and nurses and not from a registered dietitian. So you can actually get separate care 
you, if you're, if you have diabetes, Medicare will pay for diabetes education and they will pay for you to meet with a dietitian as well with no copay. And most That's private great. insurance, most private insurances also will do the same thing that they will pay for it. Um, but it's just not being utilized. And then there's all these issues at the healthcare structure level that are barriers. Like people don't know how to bill or physicians don't even know that it's available. In fact, we polled um, nephrologists and we we're amazed like 80% of nephrologists had no idea that Medicare pays for medical nutrition therapy. Um, so, um, so I'm really interested in trying to get patients linked up with dietitians because it's like the resource is there. The knowledge is there and dietitians are fabulous in working with patients. And I've really seen patients meet with dietitians and they become activated, you know, like all of a sudden they're like, Oh, Hey, eating Twinkies isn't good for me and eating hot dogs isn't good for me. And I'm going to, I'm going to make these changes and they feel activated about their own health. They feel like empowered about their own health and that they can do something to slow kidney disease progression and keep them off dialysis. And that, is really, really important to patients. And physicians, you know, we only have like 15, 20 minutes with our patients and we don't really have time to talk about this. We don't really have the background to educate patients. You know, like there's a certain method of educating so that the what you teach sticks with the patient. And I think physicians in general lack that um, knowledge and uh, dietitians know how to do that. So, so that's what I'm most interested in right now is is trying to improve healthcare structure and improve knowledge about medical nutrition therapy so that we can get more of our patients linked with something that's already paid for. Yeah, that's crazy. And you just wonder why, I guess it's just a lack of knowledge on all fronts, on the doctor's side, on the patient side, et cetera. So yeah, a lot of room there for improvement. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. Well, Holly, we're at the end. Um, what's the best way for people to get in touch uh, to find out more about your work? Um, well, they can tweet me at uh, Kramer underscore Holly, um, or you can uh, email me at hkramer at lumc dot edu. Oh, great. Holly, thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.